My name is Ron Cool. I'm one of the pastors here at Hillside. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Once again, this morning, we're going to be looking at the tabernacle, uh, the good news that comes from this Old Testament tent that God used uh, and the people of Israel used after God rescued them out of Egypt. And they were out in the, in the wilderness and uh, the desert there. And uh, they lived in a, the, the people all lived in tents and God lived in the tabernacle. And so we said that the tabernacle is God's home in the midst of his people. This is the place where God lived. And God put the tabernacle right in the midst of the people. Because something that's true about our God that we need to remember over and over again is that he wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. He is a God who wants to be in the midst of his people. He wants to be close to us. He wants to draw near to us. He wants to strengthen us as we journey, as we go along through our lives. He wants to not just kind of send us, but he promises to go with us. And and he's with us in the Old Testament. He was with the people through the tabernacle. Now, we talked early on, and we got to remember it every week, basically. That is that, that God not only puts his home in the midst of the people, he makes a way for us to get close to him. Because we start off outside of the fence. We start off because of our sinfulness, separated from God by that sin and his holiness. And, and, and so God makes a way for us to come close with the altar. We talked about the sacrifices and with the, the basin where we wash away our sins and so on. We said ultimately those point to the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ and his blood. And now that, how that opens up the door for us now to come to God's home, to come into God's presence to be with God. And so last week we started talking about the tabernacle proper, this building itself, the place itself that is God's home. And and we asked this question, and we'll ask it again for a little while here, but what's it like? What is God's home like? Last week we looked at kind of the structure of it. We looked at the coverings. We looked at the dimensions. We looked at the frame of it, and we learned some lessons from that. This week we're going to go inside. When we go inside the tabernacle, the first room that we come to is what's called the holy place, all right? And all of the priests could come into this place on the right rotation and so on. The next room, the most holy place, only the high priest could go into. But when we talk about priests, remember, we are all priests, and the priests are the representative of the people. So in Christ, we can come into these places. Three pieces of furniture inside here that we're going to look at in the next two weeks. First one is a table. The table of showbread, we could call it. And then there's a golden lampstand. We're going to take a look at that as well this morning. And then over here is the altar of incense. And that's what we're going to look at next week. So three pieces of furniture. This week we start with this. And and as I think about these two things, about the table and and about the lampstand, what I want you to think about is, is to recognize that what God is giving us here are two gifts for our journey. As we journey through life, as we face the ups and the downs, the ins and the outs, the goods and the bad, the struggles, these are two gifts that God gives us over and over and over again, all right? And so we need these gifts. We're going to start with uh, with a table of showbread, and we read about it in Exodus 25. If you've got Bibles with you and you want to read along with me, you can turn to Exodus 25. I'm going to read verses 25 to 30 and make a few comments as we go along through this. So this is what God tells Moses to do. He says, make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. All right, so it's acacia wood. I don't think there's anything necessarily significant about the fact that it's acacia wood. That's what's been used through all of this. It was just the best wood available, okay? I don't think there's anything else significant about that. What about the size? It's two, by, two cubits by a cubit wide by a cubit and a half high. What that means, since we know that a cubit is 18 inches, all right, from the distance from your elbow to the tip of your finger, that means it's 36 inches wide or along. It's about 18 inches wide, and it's about 27 inches tall. 
I was trying to find a table that would match it, and this is the closest I could come, for those of you who can see this one. Uh, it's not very big, right? This is actually 36 inches wide here, or long here. This is actually 20 inches. It's two inches longer, uh, wider than it should be, okay? It should be this, and it's an inch taller. But this is basically all the bigger that table was, okay? It was not big. We talked about it last week, about how, how God does not build kind of showcase stuff. God builds stuff that's functional, okay? It's beautiful, all right? We're going to have it covered with gold, all right? That's the next thing we're told. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it, okay? So it was certainly beautiful, and the molding would have been there uh, uh, about halfway up there. You can see it there. Also make around it a rim, a hand breadth wide. Put a gold molding on the rim, okay? So that's there up at the top. Make four gold rings up for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. Again, they would be there, okay? The rings are to be close to the rim, close to the top there to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold and carry the table with them. And now we get the furniture, now we get the stuff on top of the table, okay? That's all describing the table. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. So on this table, in addition to the bread, there were plates and tables and pitchers and bowls and a number of things that were there. And then put the bread on, of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. This is God's word. So the table would have been one of the first things you see. You come into the, and again, the, the tabernacle itself would be about the size from the wall to this kind of silver strip here where the stairs start there. But if you came into the tabernacle, one of the first things we'd see off to the right would be this little table, okay? It would be over here, and we might kind of wonder about it and what it's about, all right? So I want to think about that table with you. What's the significance of it? What does it mean, and what does it mean for us today in our day? I want to tell you that, in my view, the details of the building of the table are not symbolically significant. You can read people who will say, oh, a cubit and a half, that points to the Trinity, I have no idea what they're talking about, okay? So don't, I don't think there's anything in the wood. I don't think there's anything in the measurements. The one number that I think matters is that the 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? The, the number 12 is so significant in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and, and so much of the time. And so I think it's all of Israel is there. Every tribe is represented. All of God's people are represented. They are there on that table offering themselves to God, but also being in God's presence. So what does this table teach us? What is it about? There are two lessons, and then it points to Jesus. But the first one is one that I think is so cool, and I don't think we think of God very much this way. And I want to challenge you to think about God in this way and, and what this table represents here. But I think the first thing that this really represents is that God wants to share a meal with you. God wants to share a meal with us. When we come into God's presence, there's a dining room table there. <laughs> and there's a table with pitchers and plates and cups and bread and either wine or beer, okay? I mean, it was some strong fermented drink. And so that's all there gathered at the table. And, and what God is saying to us is, let's share a meal together. L let's sit down. In a sense, honestly, I, I, I'm not trying to be crazy or, or just push things, but I think what God says to us with this table is, hey, let's have a beer. Let's have a glass of wine. I don't think you probably think of God saying that, but I think that's exactly what God is saying. Let's sit down. Let's have a cocktail together. Let's spend some time together. I want to hear your story. I want to find out what's going on in your life. And in that day, we still have a sense of it today, but in that day, especially eating together was a sign of acceptance. 
It was a sign of friendship. If somebody invited you into their home, if somebody shared a meal with you, they broke bread, they, they shared their wine with you, it was a sign of saying, I care about you, and I approve of you, and I accept you. That's what Jesus got in trouble for, right? I mean, in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, we read this. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, it wasn't that Jesus was t- talking with them. They didn't get upset for Jesus to talk to them. Jesus was free to do that. He was free to talk, but when he ate with them, when he sat down at a meal with them, when he broke bread with them, when he raised a glass with them, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know the message that he's sending? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, well, uh, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, okay? You're all sick, they just, you just don't know it. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. I think Jesus could have also said, I'm just doing what my father taught me to do with the tabernacle. Because what God did in the tabernacle is he invited broken people to come in and to share hearts and to just hang out with God. Like I say, I think for many of us, we do okay picturing God is awesome. And, 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 And we can understand what it means to fear God. He is so powerful. We see storms and we think, God does those things, no problem. You know, no problem thinking of God is awesome. We, we, I don't think you have a big problem thinking of God is holy and we see our own guilt. Both of those are real. Both of those are legit. Both of those are important. But can you see God as your friend? Can you see the God who created everything as a friend who wants to have a cup of coffee with you? As a friend who wants to share a cookie with you? As a friend who wants to say, tell me what's going on? You know, it's interesting. We think about it, and I think sometimes we say, well, I want to have a drink. I need to escape. Somebody talked about this recently. What if we said, God, I need a drink. How about you join me? And don't drink too much. And, and, and again, I'm, I don't drink, so I have coffee, whatever. Diet Coke, whatever. I don't care. It's not the alcohol that matters. But what if you just sat down and said, God, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's where I'm struggling. I mean, he puts a dining room table in the tabernacle. He wants to share a meal with us. So I want you to think about two questions along those lines, okay? First one is is kind of essential. For many of us, we've already answered it. But how do I become a friend of God? How how can I imagine that God would come to me? That's where the cross comes in, okay? It's through the cross and the washing of the blood of Jesus that we are brought into God's presence, that we are created to be friends of God, okay? But for more of us, how do I grow in friendship with God? I, I wonder sometimes, I, I, I try to do this in my devotional life feels a little different. Uh, some of us, we know we need to pray and we know we need to read the Bible, right? Those are good things to do. We should do them every day. But they become things we should do. What if it's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go spend some time with a friend. I'm going to tell him what's on my heart and I'm going to listen to what he has to say to me. If we turn devotions into time with a friend, might we get more out of it? Might we experience a closer intimacy with God? God wants to share a meal with us. We've got to keep moving on. That's, I think, the, the first thing. The second thing that the, bread of, the, the table of showbread shows us and, and teaches us is that God provides for us. He provides for our daily bread. He provides for our daily needs. See, the bread on the table was not for God to eat. In, in the other nations around them, that's what people brought food to the temple for. 
You, you can learn about it. I'm not going to go through all of them, but so on. But they would bring bread to the temple, and we'd be, oh, God, we know you're hungry, so here we go. Here's your food. Here's your wine. Here's your uh, drink, whatever it is. God, here you go. And, and it was all for the gods to eat. And every day they would bring stuff. The God of the Bible doesn't need to eat. And he certainly doesn't need us to do it. Psalm 50 verse 12 says this, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. I, God doesn't need us to take care of him. He is not served. Paul, or uh, Peter, rather, in Acts 17. Paul, rather, in Acts 17. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone in life and breath and everything else. The bread wasn't for God to eat. The bread was for the priests. It was for the people. It was for us. Every Sabbath day, they would bake new bread and they would bring it in, all right? Leviticus 24, verse 8 says this, all right? Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall set them in order. That's the loaves of bread in order before the Lord regularly as a commitment of the Israelites as a covenant forever. So they would break new bread. They would come and they would put that on the table, all right? These 12 new loaves, however they did it. Some say rows, some say stacks, but they would put that there. And then Aaron and the other priests would eat the bread, Every Sabbath day, that's the bread they would eat. They shall be, those loaves shall be for Aaron and his descendants who shall eat them in a holy place. For they are most holy portions for him from the offerings by fire to the Lord, a perpetual due. It was for the people. The bread is there because God feeds us. And since we offer it to God and God said, now I give it back to you. And, 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 and so this bread is, is God's provision for us. And one of the really cool things to think about is that God is insistent that this bread is never gone. Before they eat the old bread, they have to bring the new bread, right? So the bread is always before God. Our needs are always before God. God set this up as a constant reminder, in a sense, to himself. He doesn't forget anything, but he wants us to know as a constant reminder that God is saying, Ron needs bread. More protein, less carbs, but Ron needs bread. Ron needs daily food, right? Rich needs this. Vani needs this. Our needs are always before God. Exodus 25, 30, put the bread of the presence of this, on this table to be before me at all times. God is deeply aware of what we need. So God provides a meal for us. God uh, invites us to share a meal. God provides for us. And then ultimately what this points to is God provides what we really needed and what we need yet. That is Jesus. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. It's interesting to think of the context when he says this, when Jesus says, yeah, that bread, that was me. I am the bread of life. I am what you really need. See, Jesus in John chapter 6, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Some of you might remember that story. Five loaves, two fish. They had 12 baskets left over, all right? And so Jesus has just done that. He's just fed 5,000 people, five loaves, two fish, and, and he, he gets out of Dodge. He leaves because the people want to make him king. So Jesus leaves that place, but the people track him down. And Jesus says, you're here for all the wrong reasons. You're here for all the wrong reasons. He Jesus answered them. He said, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me because you, not because you saw signs, but because you, are, because you ate your fill of the loaves, which you think is cool. You'll never go hungry if I'm king. And you're going to be satisfied if, you're, if your physical hunger is satisfied. Jesus says, that's nothing compared to the bread you really need. What you need is the bread from heaven. For the bread of God, he says in verse 33, is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, give us this bread. And that's when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus says, ultimately, it's me. He's what we need. More than we need a bigger paycheck, more than we need a, a different spouse, more than we need a better kids. What we need, we need is Jesus and his presence and his strength. He is the ultimate bread of life, okay? And we must never settle for anything less than that. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And, and again, we could do so much of this, but just the Lord's Supper. I mean, when we see a table with bread and wine, if you don't think of the Lord's Supper, then, 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 then I, I, I just wish you would, okay? I mean, we all should, right? A table with bread and wine. And we think of Luke 22 where Jesus, we read this, then he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so if we were to go into that tabernacle knowing what we know now, and we'd see that bread, and we'd see that wine, we'd know that it's God. It's God pointing to his son, Jesus, the bread that we really need. All right, that's the table, those, those three things there. Let's move on to the lampstand, all right? We're going to move across the, the, the tabernacle to the other side. This was on the north end because, again, the entrance faces east. Now, if we turn this way, what we see is the lampstand. Here's what uh, the instructions are. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft. It wasn't poured into a form. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them, all right? All one piece. By the way, the gold, we're told in another place, was about a talent, which is 75 pounds. This is a, a, a good-sized piece of gold here. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups, now he talks about decorations. Three cups shaped like, shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three again on the next branch, and the same for all six branches. So 18 of these, and actually the middle one had, uh, had four, so uh, 22 altogether, extending from the lampstand. So we know that this thing has some decorations on it, almond buds, blossoms, and so on. We know it's got six uh, branches, three on each side. Um, we actually have a pretty good idea of what this might well look like, and this is, uh, again, I think really a fascinating thing. Uh, if you went to Rome today, you could go and see the Arch of Titus, okay? It was built in 1982 by the brother of Titus, and uh, it looks like this, okay? And, and, and Titus was a Roman general, and in 70 A.D., Titus went and he destroyed Jerusalem. Titus went on behalf of Rome and there was an up uprising in Jerusalem. Titus went and destroyed it. So his brother, after Titus died, his brother built this Arch of Triumph, the Arch of Titus, Arc de Triomphe. In Paris, there are similar things, all right? And, and on the inside, there are pictures, okay? There are pictures of that, uh, of that conquest. And if we look forward into this one that, that the arrow is pointing to, you can see that what it's a picture of, of carrying out the treasures from the temple. Okay? If you look, this is probably, we're not 100% sure, but that's probably a table of showbread. They're carrying out the golden things from the temple. This is probably the golden lampstand. Now, again, this is not the same one. This is from 70, okay, A.D. It's the second temple, but it probably is based on the same. So that's why we suggest it probably looks something like that, all right? And we zoom in, and you can see, we, again, it's, it's worn away, but this would be where those, uh, where those decorations were, all right? So the lampstand, we're going to suggest, looks something like this. And this is where the, uh, the, the almond blood uh, uh, 
blossoms and, and uh, buds were, uh, the cups there. Now, some of you might be thinking, hey, that's a menorah, right? Well, it is, but it's not a Hanukkah menorah. A Hanukkah menorah has nine candles, eight, uh, four on each side and one in the middle a little bit taller because um, that's for a different holiday, different deal, okay? So it's really, it's based on this menorah on the lampstand, the golden lampstand. This one has seven, okay? So what does it teach us? What are the lessons? Again, two and then pointing to Jesus. The first one is, is based on the fact that it looks like a tree, all right? Because God gives life. God gives life. This looks like a tree in the midst of this. And we've talked before about how when you came into the, into the tabernacle itself with the blue on top, the sky and so on, it represented to a degree the Garden of Eden. And, and so what we have here is this tree is saying God is the source of life. God is the one who gives us life. We must never forget that, that he is the one who gives us sustenance and so on. We can go back and look at Genesis 2 verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one that Adam and Eve ate from that caused the world to fall into sin, okay? But the tree of life is the one that gives life and it gives eternal life. And the fact is, because God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat that tree while they were in this stage, while they were in a sinful stage, then they'd stay, we'd stay sinful forever. God kicks them out before they can eat from the tree of life. But now we see the tree of life shows up again here in the tabernacle. And there's a promise that one day God is going to again give us that tree of life. That one day God is going to make all things new, including us. It's an almond tree, okay, right? You got those, it, it, it looks like that. That's what those buds are. That's what those things are, right? The three cups shaped like almond flowers, or almond flowers, if you don't know how to say it, with buds and blossoms. They're all to be on one ranch, branch and then on the others and so on. So it, it, it's supposed to represent an almond tree, okay? What's the deal with almonds? Well, this is not the only almond tree that we read about it, it, during this time when Israel is in the desert, during this time when Israel is basically at Sinai. In the book of Numbers, chapter 17, verse 8, um, there was a question about who was going to be the high priest and, and so on. And so what they did is the people from the priestly families took their staff, their rod, and they put it in the tabernacle, okay? So this is after everything is built. But they put it in the tabernacle, and this is what happened. Now, it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. Okay, God likes almonds. Okay, why? what's with the almonds? Why, what is the significance of that? Again, it's not 100% clear, but it, 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 it's pretty clear. I mean, I, I'm 99% on this one, okay? Uh, Jeremiah 1, 11, and 12 will also point you this direction. But the almond tree was significant because it was the first tree that would bloom in the spring, okay? Everything else would be dead. Everything else would be gone. But the almond tree was, was the one that was the first bloomer of the spring. It was the first one. And so it was the tree everybody watched, right? You know how it is. You look for the, we look for the first robin of spring, right? Oh, good. The summer is coming, or the first buds, the first flowers, whatever it is. This is what they did with the almond tree. Because when that starts, again, new life is going to come out of death. When that, when that tree goes, and I think what God is saying here is keep a watch on me because I can bring life out of death. Keep your eyes open because I can make all things new. I am the source of life. Put your trust in me. And all these other gods say they're going to give you life. They're going to give you a full life. But God gives true life. 
The second thing that God gives through the lampstand is God gives light. All right? On top of these lamps stands were seven lamps that would have looked something like this. Um, we're told that they looked something like uh, almond uh, itself. And so you can see that, that uh, oil lamp would have looked like that. There would have been seven of them, one on each, each of, the, uh, of the branches there. Seven is a number of fullness, okay? And, and so when we think about this, we think about it life. Um, we think about it in light. It is, it is full lightness. God is pure. God is holy. And one of the things that's really cool is this light was always burning. This light was kept burning at all times. Exodus 27, verse 21. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. All right? And and it was not long before they just kept it going all day because it would have been dark in there, right? You had dark curtains covering everything. And and, and so this is, I, I just love that picture. And I wonder if... If the Israelites, if they ever did that where, you know, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and they wake up and they're worried about something, I wonder if they went out of their tents and they looked towards the tabernacle and saw that God was the original one who left a light on for you. It was God who, who would not turn off that light. He's there. He's with us. And I, and I think, you know, that is so cool to think about that God's light never goes out. God's light is always lit. If you go to, if you go to um, Jewish... Um, temples or synagogues today, many of them will have a perpetual light lit from evening till morning, from morning till evening. So the light was always burning. And the light gives us two things. It gives us, first of all, safety, security. The fact is, if you tell me that you are not afraid of the dark, I don't think you've ever been in the dark. If you are ever in the absolute, complete dark, it does not take long, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, if you're really tough, before you start to lose it, because the dark is a scary place. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what's going on. You can't see anything. And in God's light, we know we're safe. God's light, we know we're secure. God's light gives guidance, right? The Bible says over and over again, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And so over and over again, God gives us that light that keeps us safe. God gives life, God gives light, and ultimately God gives Jesus, right? Gospel of John says, in him was life. Jesus was the word. The word was in God, with God in the beginning. The word was with God and the word was God. In him was life and that life was the light. Life and light together. Light of all mankind. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus spoke again to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. We need the light of Jesus to keep us safe and to guide us and, and to tell us where to go. John 10, 10, against seven lampstands, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's what Jesus is about, about a full life. So God gives Jesus. God gives life. God gives light. God gives Jesus. Let's wrap it up just by recognizing, and I want you to just think about this. If, I don't know how you can help yourself remember, but as you go through this week, don't recognize you don't go alone. Jesus has come to tabernacle with us. The Holy Spirit has come to be with us. And inside of you, you have God's bread and you have God's lamp. Inside of you, you have that which you most need. You have Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. You have safety, you have security, and no matter what happens out there. And and so whenever you leave home this week, don't leave home without these. Remember the table and remember the lamp. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. 
as we go through this world and we sometimes feel all alone and we get scared, sometimes things seem like they're falling apart. And yet through Jesus Christ, you give us bread, you provide for our needs, you provide for bread for our souls, you give us light, which is life, which is direction. And so Father, thank you for Jesus and teach us to live in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.